Hi everyone, welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of herpes zoster, or shingles, found under the infectious disease section at medbullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A 45-year-old woman presents to the emergency room for a rash on her face. She reports that this rash started as a small, flat, red rash yesterday, but progressed to a very painful rash. She also reports some blurry vision in her right eye. She has a past medical history of lupus and is on long-term steroids. On physical exam, she has an extensive vesicular rash on the right side of her face involving her nose and eyes. She is admitted into the hospital for antiviral therapy, and ophthalmology is consulted. Let's continue with an introduction to herpes zoster or shingles. With regards to its classification, remember that varicella zoster virus, or VZV, is an enveloped, linear, double-stranded DNA virus. It is also known as human herpes virus 3, and it is transmitted via respiratory secretions and direct contact with skin lesions. Also remember that it causes chickenpox, herpes zoster, or shingles, encephalitis, meningitis, and pneumonia. With regards to epidemiology, remember that demographically, herpes zoster occurs in elderly populations. Encephalitis and pneumonia will also occur in the immunocompromised, and it affects men more often than women. Risk factors include immunosuppression, advanced age, and previous infection with VZV. The pathogenesis involves the virus infecting T cells first, but then the virus becomes latent in the dorsal root ganglia or trigeminal ganglia and reactivation of the latent virus will then cause herpes zoster, which is often precipitated by immunocompromise or stress. In terms of prevention, remember that there is a recombinant vaccine for herpes zoster that is available for adults over the age of 50, and there is also a live vaccine that is available for adults over the age of 60. And with regards to prognosis, remember that complete healing may take more than one month. Moving on to the presentation, Remember that symptoms are often preceded by a prodrome of itchiness or tingling, which will then develop into a painful rash. On physical exam, one will note a painful unilateral vesicular or pustular skin eruption along a single dermatome, which does not cross midline. This may involve the eye in what is known as herpes zoster ophthalmicus and will be in the distribution of cranial nerve 5. It may also involve the ear in Ramsey-Hunt syndrome or herpes zoster oticus, and this is in the distribution of cranial nerve 7. Other studies that may be performed include labs such as a zinc smear, which may demonstrate multinucleated giant cells. One may also perform a polymerase chain reaction or direct fluorescent antibody staining. And when making the diagnosis, remember that most cases are clinically diagnosed, but in atypical cases, laboratory examination may be useful. And in terms of the differential, make sure to think about herpes simplex virus, with a distinguishing factor being that it typically does not present in a dermatomal fashion. Also think about contact dermatitis, with a distinguishing factor being that it is typically more itchy than painful. And in terms of treatment, remember that the management approach for herpes zoster involves antivirals as the first line of therapy. Specific medical treatment options include oral antivirals, which are indicated for all patients with shingles. Specific drugs include valacyclovir, famcyclovir, and acyclovir. Intravenous antivirals are indicated in patients with visceral or central nervous system disease, and specific drugs include acyclovir. Analgesics are also indicated in all patients, but do not give aspirin because of the risk for Rice syndrome. And complications related to herpes zoster include disseminated disease, which may be seen in immunocompromised patients and often involves the viscera, 
There may also be post-herpetic neuralgia, which is very common, as well as fetal complications, which may include blindness, scarring, and limb hypoplasia. And finally, remember that there may be vision loss, corneal anesthesia, and keratitis from herpes zoster ophthalmicus. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to herpes zoster, let's walk through some questions to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For the first question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 65-year-old man presents to the emergency department with ear pain and is concerned that he has had a stroke. The patient states that this morning he had trouble moving one side of his face. Otherwise, he has noticed worsening ear pain over the past two days. The patient has a past medical history of diabetes and hypertension. His temperature is 98.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.9 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 153 over 91. Pulse is 90 beats per minute. Respirations are 13 breaths per minute. And oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. Physical exam is notable for right-sided paralysis of the upper and lower portions of the patient's face. The rest of the patient's neurologic exam is unremarkable and he demonstrates normal strength, sensation, gait, speech, and memory. Dermatologic exam reveals vesicles which are present in the patient's ear canal. Which of the following is the best next step in management? And the answer choices are choice one, acyclovir. Choice two, CT angiogram of the head and neck. Choice three, MRI of the head. Choice four, mupirocin. Or choice five, vancomycin and cefepime. The best answer to this question is choice one, acyclovir. This patient is presenting with Bell palsy, otalgia, and vesicles in his ear canal, which is concerning for Ramsay-Hunt syndrome, which is caused by herpes zoster and can be diagnosed clinically and treated with acyclovir. Ramsay-Hunt syndrome is caused by a herpes zoster infection, which can affect cranial nerve 7, causing facial paralysis, and cranial nerve 8, causing hearing changes. Other symptoms include ear pain, a vesicular rash that extends into the ear canal, and altered face sensation. Patients with classic symptoms and no other neurological sequelae can be treated with acyclovir. The diagnosis can be further confirmed with a zinc prep and a viral culture which should not delay treatment. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice two, CT angiogram of the head and neck would be performed if a patient presented with new onset neurological symptoms of unclear etiology with a suspected vascular etiology to their symptoms. The vesicles in this patient's auditory canal point toward an alternative diagnosis. Choice three, MRI of the head could be indicated for diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, which presents in a young woman with paresthesias weakness, and optic neuritis, among many other possible neurologic sequelae. The diagnosis could be confirmed with a lumbar puncture, demonstrated albuminocytologic dissociation. Choice four, mupirocin is a topical treatment that can be used in the management of impetigo, which presents with honey-crusted lesions on the skin, which occur secondary to Staphylococcus aureus and Streptococcus pyogenes. Choice five, Vancomycin and cefepime could be appropriate management of malignant otitis externa, which presents with ear pain, edema, and granulation tissue in the ear canal. This is a life-threatening condition that is more common in elderly and immunosuppressed patients. Workup includes imaging such as CT scan or MRI, biopsy, broad-spectrum antibiotics that cover Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and possible surgical intervention. Finally, a bullet summary. Ramsay-Hunt syndrome is a herpes zoster infection that is treated with acyclovir.
For the second question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 45-year-old woman presents to the ophthalmologist with a complaint of redness and photophobia in her right eye for the past two days. She says that she noticed these changes after her young nephew accidentally brushed the end of a hockey stick directly into her eye when they were playing in the backyard, although she was surprised to feel an absence of significant eye pain during the incident or afterwards. She also notes that vision in her right eye has become more blurry in the past year. On slit lamp exam, the ophthalmologist finds a large corneal abrasion with fluorescein staining, as well as evidence of corneal scarring from previous eye trauma. The patient is found to have an absent corneal reflex in her right eye. Which of the following conditions would most likely be present in her past medical history? And the answer choices are, choice one, herpes zoster infection. Choice two, nuclear sclerotic cataract. Choice three, orbital cellulitis. Choice four, sarcoidosis, or choice five, Sjogren syndrome. The best answer to this question is, choice one, herpes zoster infection. This patient presenting with a corneal abrasion and evidence of repeated corneal trauma without corneal sensation likely has had damage to the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve, or V1, which can occur after herpes zoster infection affecting the trigeminal nerve. Herpes zoster infection, or shingles, manifests as a reactivation of a latent varicella zoster virus infection in a specific nerve and typically presents as a painful skin rash along a dermatome. About 10 to 20% of herpes zoster cases involve the eye, which is known as herpes zoster ophthalmicus, and can result in keratitis that often is associated with corneal denervation and subsequent loss of corneal sensation. Patients with loss of corneal sensation are susceptible to repeated corneal abrasions from trauma and corneal scarring. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice two, nuclear sclerotic cataract, the most common type of cataract in which the central portion of the crystalline lens hardens and yellows gradually over years, does not affect corneal sensation. Patients with nuclear sclerotic cataracts will have blurriness of vision, poor vision in dark settings, and glare. Choice three, Orbital cellulitis is an inflammation of the soft tissues of the eye socket, most commonly from the spread of a bacterial infection to the orbit from the adjacent sinuses, skin, or through the blood. Loss of corneal sensation is not a direct complication by orbital cellulitis. Choice four, sarcoidosis is a systemic inflammatory disease that commonly includes uveitis as a clinical manifestation, resulting in blurred vision, photophobia, redness, and pain. Corneal sensation is not directly affected. Choice five, Sjogren syndrome is a chronic inflammatory condition that leads to dry eyes, also known as keratoconjunctivitis sicca, but does not affect corneal sensation. Finally, a bullet summary. Herpes zoster ophthalmicus infection can cause corneal denervation. For the third question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 59-year-old man presents to the emergency department with a painful rash. The patient states that he had felt an electrical-like pain in the area for the past couple of days, but today he noticed a rash. The patient has a past medical history of diabetes, which is well controlled with metformin and insulin. His temperature is 97.6 degrees Fahrenheit, or 36.4 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 133 over 83. Pulse is 80 beats per minute. Respirations are 12 breaths per minute, and oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. Physical exam reveals a vesicular papular rash in a dermatomal distribution. Which member of the human herpes virus 
family is the most likely etiology of this patient's symptoms? And the answer choices are choice 1, HHV1, choice 2, HHV3, choice 3, HHV4, choice 4, HHV6, or choice 5, HHV8. The best answer to this question is choice 2, HHV3. This patient is presenting with neuropathic pain followed by a vesicular papular rash and a dermatomal distribution, which is concerning for a diagnosis of shingles, which is caused by HHV3. Herpes zoster, also known as shingles or HHV3, can present in children as chickenpox and later in life as shingles. The presentation of shingles is caused by viral reactivation in the dorsal root ganglion, leading to neuropathic pain, initially followed by the classic vesicular rash in a dermatomal distribution. This diagnosis is more common in patients with a suppressed immune system, such as in the elderly, in times of great stress, in immunosuppressed patients, and in HIV. The diagnosis can be made clinically, however, a viral culture or PCR is the most accurate test. The treatment of choice is an antiviral agent such as acyclovir. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. HHV1 corresponds to herpes simplex virus 1, which can cause genital or oral lesions and is treated by acyclovir. It presents with initial neuropathic pain that progresses to vesicles followed by ulcers. Choice 3. HHV4 corresponds to Epstein-Barr virus, which can cause infectious mononucleosis, which presents with malaise, fatigue, posterior cervical lymphadenopathy, and splenomegaly. Choice 4. HHV6 corresponds to roseola, which typically presents in pediatric patients with a high fever that can cause febrile seizures, followed by an afebrile phase with a rash, which demonstrates an erythematous macular eruption of discrete red lesions. Choice 5. HHV8 describes Kaposi's sarcoma, which presents in patients with HIV with red and violaceous plaques on the skin with a CD4 count less than 100 per millimeter cubed. Finally, a bullet summary. Shingles presents with a dermatomal vesiculopapular rash and is caused by HHV3. That's all for this review about herpes zoster. We hope that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session for MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or phone app, while reading through the topic. If the MedBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you considered leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here, on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.